I have often noticed that when people, many Christians, when they think about the good news, they think about the good news or the gospel in terms of what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. And that is, of course, right and proper. Jesus, as we read earlier, was delivered up past tense. It is done. He was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. The work of salvation, atonement, is done. It is accomplished. The gospel is rooted in events in historical past, in the works that God has finished. Nevertheless, I think we sometimes forget that God's love for us does not dry, does not run dry with Jesus' death and resurrection. Rather, God's loving purpose for the forgiven and justified sinners encompasses Jesus' past work, absolutely, his death, his resurrection, his atonement, and it includes also his present work of making intercession for his people, and it also encompasses his future work, meaning bringing all of us to glory. And this morning, our attention, our focus is on what the Lord will do for you. Our attention this morning is the beauty of the gospel that is yet to come, but that which God promises to do. And so the first thing we see here is that Jesus, he will not be silent and he will not be still. So notice the very first verse we read, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Now, who's the speaker? Who's speaking here? Who is the one who says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet? Of course, the answer is in chapter 61, the last chapter that we looked at. Chapter 61, verse 1, we read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so in chapter 61, uh, we began to see the Lord who earlier was called a suffering servant in view of his finished work of atonement, his title begins to change. Increasingly, the Lord who was called a suffering servant is called the anointed one, the one who is anointed with the Spirit of God. And, you know, of course, that's what the word Messiah means, the anointed one. And that's what the word Christ means, the anointed one. So it is that anointed Messiah, Christ, who refuses to be silent or be quiet. But it's so important to recognize that this is not just about his words. Because we can see from what follows that Jesus, Jesus cannot be silent in terms of words, 
but also he cannot be still in terms of action. And so the question to ask is, to what end? To what end will Jesus not be silent? And to what end will Jesus not be still? And the answer is, Jesus is going to speak and he is going to act until praise and glory come to Zion and Jerusalem. Now, we have learned uh, over the course of many weeks that Isaiah, when he speaks of Zion and Jerusalem, especially in these contexts, Zion and Jerusalem does not, that they are interchangeable names, Zion does not stand for the center of Israel's earthly politics in Palestine, but Zion and Jerusalem stand for the people whose king is the Lord. And so it is for Zion and Jerusalem's sake, for the sake of God's people, that Jesus will not be silent or stand still until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Now, what righteousness is Jesus speaking of here? Well, the answer is all the way back in chapter 53, verse 11. We read there that by his knowledge, the suffering servant, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so we saw there and elsewhere, of course, that righteousness is something that we receive as a gift from the suffering servant who bore our iniquities. And so here, when the anointed one says that he will not be silent or stand still until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, the primary idea here is not righteousness in terms of the good things that we do, but rather the righteousness for which Jesus is responsible, righteousness that we have received as a gift, and Jesus is making a promise. He will not be silent. He will not be still until that righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. And the important thing about that is this. We read here, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You know, as as things stand now, our faith in God is a liability. As things stand now, our faith in God is a liability. Now, to be sure, no one has a problem with that Jesus who only ever seems to say to people, do not judge. You know, that's the Jesus we hear about today, isn't it? And to be perfectly clear, no one ever has a problem with that Jesus who only ever says to people, do not 
judge. And no one, no one will ever get into one bit of trouble for following that Jesus who only ever says to people, do not judge. But the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who was crucified to make atonement for our sin, that Jesus demonstrates that God's attitude towards sin is wrath, and that Jesus demonstrates that God's commitment against unholiness is eternal judgment. And also, the Jesus, not of the common culture today, but the Jesus of the Bible is himself the judge of man, and he will himself welcome the believers into his kingdom, and he will himself assign the unbelieving to the everlasting wrath. And to follow that Jesus today means trouble. And faith in that Jesus today is a liability. But Jesus will not be silent or sit still until until that righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, until the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. In other words, as things stand now today, our faith in Jesus of the Bible is a liability. But one day, the nations and the kings the powers that be that mock the gospel message, one day will see the glory of Jesus Christ and the righteousness by which we live. And that, that is what the Lord will do. And that, that is what makes our hard faithfulness today so worth it. Because, loved ones, to be faithful to Jesus today is hard. Because our faith in the Jesus of the Bible is no longer celebrated, is no longer expected, is no longer even acknowledged as a good thing. And in this time and in this culture, to be faithful to that Jesus will cost us But why would you continue? Why would you persevere? Why would you say, it doesn't matter what people say, because I know the Lord? And what makes that hard faithfulness worth it is that one day, the nations and the kings will see the glory and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that makes it worthwhile. Jesus will not be silent or be still. And the second thing we see is that God will delight in you. God will delight in you. 
I suppose I owe you a bit of an explanation when I say God will delight in you because it almost sounds as if God does not delight in you right now. When I say God will delight in you. Uh, loved ones, that is not to suggest that God does not delight in us now. You know, what's really interesting is that, and I see it in many people, I think I see it in myself time to time, that we, we measure the strength of God's love for us according to the strength of our love for God. Let me say that again. We, we think God loves us as much as we love God. And since we love God inconsistently, and since we love God with a divided heart, we, we assume, don't we, that that is exactly how God loves us. <laughs> uh, but on the contrary, God is not like that. Because God's tenderness for us only grows and increases when we stumble just the way a loving parent's heart fills with love for their suffering child. That is to say, God delights in us today, now, even though we are weak and we stumble often. So then what in the world do I mean when I say God will delight in you? It means this. The point is not that God does not delight in us today, but rather when our troubled life is over, and let's face it, our lives are filled with troubles. But when our troubled life is over, when even when life has battered us and left us bruised, we will not be left an empty shell to be cast away and forgotten. Far from it. Because this is what the Lord says. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Now, remember for a moment to whom these words were spoken. These words were spoken to the godly people who are caught up in the sins of the nation. And for all their effort, they had no success in influencing the nation. Instead, they were caught up in the troubles of not of their own making, and they watched helplessly as their world crumbled around them and their hopes and dreams were dashed. In a worldly sense, they had nothing. They lost everything. They had nothing to show for their faithfulness, no fruit of their service to God. But they are not cast away, and they are not forgotten. The suffering and the humble saints who in the worldly sense had nothing to show for their faithfulness, no influence, no fruit, 
They could only watch with sorrow and feeling helpless as everything that they held dear were taken from them. People who, in the sense of the world, who had nothing, but these suffering and humble saints become a crown of beauty and a royal diadem. These weak, humbled people, they are the very mark of God's glory and his kingship. And that's the same thing we see later on, verses 11 and 12. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. What is being said is basically this. When the anointed one, for all the suffering that he endured, for everything that he has done in order to save his people, when he comes looking for his reward and compensation for all that he has done, the reward and the compensation, the recompense that he receives are the people that he has rescued and saved. And that is why we read here, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called, they, they who his recompense, they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. So think about this. On the one hand, God looks at the people who are broken, who had nothing to show for their life of faithfulness, and he says, you are my crown. You are the royal diadem. You are the proof of my kingship. And on the other hand, we hear that the Messiah, when he come, when it comes time for him to receive his reward and his recompense, he says, the people that I have rescued, they are my reward. I mean, what sense does this make when God says to you and to me, you are my trophy? You are my glory. You know, that, that is the healing balm for our hurting hearts and troubled lives today. You know, we are endlessly broken. And we have no glory and no beauty of our own. But God, God holds us as his prized possession. And he holds us as the treasure, treasure that brings him kingly recognition and honor. He tells us that he delights in us even when we are broken, that he cherishes us even when we have nothing to offer him. And he tells us that he, he will have no other crown but you. That's what I mean, and that's what I meant when I said God will delight in you. And it is that, it is that that sanctifies our suffering, no matter how great our suffering may be, 
to know that even when in the worldly sense we have nothing, we have lost everything, we have nothing to show for our lives, simply for the fact that we have loved and trusted Him, that we will not be cast away or forgotten, but that God will hold us as His prized possession, that He will call us His glory. That's what sanctifies our suffering today. And that same thing sanctifies our service to God today. You know, we, you know, I, I know this because I hear from you. You are always wondering and thinking you are not doing enough for God. I know that it comes from a place of love and faith. So, so my heart is moved when I hear that. But just think about this. What did the godly people of Isaiah's day have to show for their faithfulness and service to the Lord? And yet would the Lord call their service meaningless? Would the Lord call their faithfulness a nothing? Clearly not, because the way the Lord sees them and treats them is that you, you are my glory. You are my delight and treasure. And that, loved one, is what sanctifies our service to God, even when it seems to us to be nothing and small and insignificant. And so hear this, loved ones. That is what the Lord will do for you. And thirdly and finally, God will be moved by our prayers. So notice that these visions of future glory lead to a great calling. And the calling is this. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. And so God calls some people to be watchmen to, to proclaim to the rest of the citizens of God's city to proclaim to them, to remind them of the glory that is to come. And it is their task to sound the warning call when anything endangers the church's holy calling to glory. Now, there is a sense in which we are all watchmen because we all have an active share in preserving and keeping pure the promise and the glory that is before us. And that said, there are some people who are particularly set apart as watchmen, uh, pastors and elders would fit that category. And if it is their task to cry out, it is your task to listen, not dismiss the warning, not dismiss the instruction, but together strive for the purity of God's people to hold precious and entire the promise of the glory that is to come. That is to say, separation from the body of Christ or rejection of the Lord's bride is never right. You cannot be a Christian with a meaningful faith and be separated from the body of Christ. We need to be faithfully committed and engaged in the body of Christ for her glory and honor. 
So that's the first calling we see in this chapter, the, the calling that issues from the great visions of future glory. And there is a second calling. And the second calling is to pray. You, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Did you hear that? Give God no rest. Pray. Pray for the promised glory to be ours until God actually brings them about. Now, prayer is a great spiritual discipline and calling. But to be honest, we all waver in prayer. We, we pray eagerly and earnestly when trouble is near. And our prayers become anemic when we experience peaceful seasons. We're all like that, aren't we? And there is a reason for that. Prayers do not persist because a praying life cannot be sustained by the needs of our personal lives. It's like throwing a waterlogged twig into dying embers, hoping that waterlogged twig will fan the flame into a blaze. You know, we do feel a sense of urgency when troubles are near, but we need a fuel that is more potent, a fuel that is more powerful to sustain our prayer life. And that fuel that is more powerful, that fuel that sustains our prayer not only in seasons of trouble but in seasons of peace, it's that longing for the coming of God's kingdom in power and for the coming of the promised glory. That is the only fuel that is potent enough to sustain a praying life. So loved ones, pray. Give God no rest. By all means, pray for every burden you carry and for every need you face. But more than that, pray without ceasing for the day of the Lord, for the day when Jesus, Jesus will bring all his work to a completion and that promised glory is yours. So you know what the Lord will do. So pray. Pray that the Lord will do it and give God no rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that in your loving and gracious heart, you hold dear the suffering saints, people who in the eyes of the world, have nothing to show for their lives, for their faithfulness, for their service. People who have been disappointed in the world 
and yet they hold on to you, and in your eyes, they are precious. Thank you, O God, for reminding us that your love knows no bounds, and the depth of your love cannot be fathomed. And so we pray that this promised glory will drive us to our knees. May we become men and women who pray without ceasing. May we be as bold as the widow who was seeking justice from the wicked judge, who kept persisting, who kept asking to receive in the end her answers. And so may we be faithful, may we be persistent for the coming of your kingdom and our glory. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.